0: invite you to follow along as I read God's word, and join me to give thanks to God when we're done reading it. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Last week, we thought a lot about how you can process the unbelief in Jesus that surrounds you. It was my prayer that you would leave our time in the word being able to better explain unbelief in your head. But also that you would leave our time in the word not being cold and indifferent to unbelief in your heart. The rejection of Jesus that we see in John 12, as well as the rejection of Jesus that we see in our world today, it shouldn't sway your confidence in Jesus, but neither should it sway your compassion for people. That was roughly the summary of the message last week, and I don't know about you, I found an immediate opportunity to apply the message from last week. The events in our state this past week have just weighed me down. But here is an opportunity for confidence that this hasn't taken God by surprise, that this doesn't change what's true. Here's an opportunity also for compassion, to hope in our powerful, merciful God, who's still in the business of opening eyes and softening hearts. And this morning, we see that our moment is an opportunity to reflect Jesus. As we move along to the next section in John's gospel, John twelve forty four seems to contradict John 12, 36, if you take a look closely. Verse 36 says that Jesus departs from his fellow Jewish countrymen who have rejected him time and time again. But then in verse 44, Jesus cries out to speak to them. How do we reconcile these verses that seem to be at odds with one another? Well if you notice John hasn't described any additional action in verses 37 or 37 through 43. Rather John in those verses is more stepping in as the narrator to explain what's going on. Verse 44 then picks up the action. So you can see verse 44 through verse 50 as Jesus's final message to these people as he is departing. I think that's very powerful. That Jesus reaches out to these people again, people who have rejected him again and again. John even says that Jesus cries out. This is a word that's only used three other times in regards to Jesus. That means that Jesus wants to get everybody's attention, as many people as he can. He cries out to people, even people who want nothing to do with him. So are you feeling weighed down by the unbelief around you, by the rejection of Jesus around you? My friend, you have an opportunity to reflect Jesus, the same one right here, that in a dark world, may our Lord make us as persistently merciful as he is. May he also give us his same persistence to preach the word, like him to preach it when it's received and like him to preach it when it's rejected. Well, this is more or less Jesus' Jesus's final message in his public ministry, and it's largely a summary of much of what he said already. In these verses, the main action that Jesus is calling people to do is to believe in him. And he builds a case that you should do that. He builds the case through clarification. Throughout verses 44 to the 50, you'll notice Jesus saying things, not this, but That. You see, Jesus knows that there are misconceptions about him, lies about him, that will keep you from trusting in him. So he wants to resolve those misconceptions. Friends, this, again, is an opportunity to reflect Jesus. In an age of unbelief, you have an opportunity to reflect Jesus's persistent mercy. But right here, in an age of unbelief, you also have an opportunity to reflect Jesus's wise tactics. You know, the people around you might not hear the words you have to say about who Jesus is and what he's come to do because they have preconceived notions about who Jesus is and what he's come to do. So you would be wise like Jesus to resolve those misconceptions that they have. It reminds me of something that the late Tim Keller would say. He would ask people, maybe skeptics about Jesus, he, he would ask them, Tell me, describe to me the Jesus that you don't believe in. Describe to me the Jesus that you've rejected. Describe him to me, because maybe I don't believe in that Jesus either. That's largely Jesus' tactic in John 12, through 50. We can summarize the message of these verses in just a sentence. Don't let misconceptions about Jesus keep you from believing in the truth about him. Namely, that he's the one sent from the Father to save the world. We'll look at four misconceptions about Jesus and how he resolves them. Misconception number one Jesus is not a true representative of the Father. I wonder have you ever heard of the concept of stolen valor? Maybe, does that ring a bell? Uh, if you were in the military, you've definitely heard of this before. Stolen valor is when someone portrays to be in the military service, but they're actually not. They might dress up in a military uniform. They might have very official-looking badges. They might even tell very convincing stories. But that person doesn't actually represent the military. And anyone in the military can quickly pick up on what's off about a person like that. And as you would imagine, anyone in the military would rightly be angry at such a person like that. The religious authorities in Jesus' day attempt to convince people that Jesus falsely represents God. In other words, they attempt to convince people that Jesus has stolen valor. They hold this view about Jesus so strongly that it leads them to adopt a new policy. They say anybody who follows Jesus will be banned from the synagogue, effectively banished from their community. Now, why do they think this way about Jesus? Well, they don't think this way because they deny Jesus has done great things. They even concede that Jesus has done a great many signs. They don't try to convince people that all the miracles Jesus has done are fake. So what gives? Why do they look at Jesus this way? Well, if you keep your finger in John 12, you can flip back to John 5, verse 18. And there you can find a good summary of the authorities' beef with Jesus. John 5, 18 Says, This was why the Jews, that title is often used to refer to authority figures. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is their beef with Jesus. Now, to say that Jesus breaks the Sabbath is to say that Jesus disregards God's law. So how can someone represent God, let alone be the Messiah sent from God, and break God's law? How could that be? Well, you press in a little bit deeper and you'll find that Jesus doesn't break God's law. No, Jesus breaks the extra regulations that the authorities added to God's law. You can see this especially with the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day was meant to be for the good of the people. It was meant to be a day to put away work a day to rest, a day to devote to worshiping the Lord. But the authorities added extra regulations that turned the Sabbath day from a blessing into a burden. They added these regulations in part to increase their power. And when Jesus broke them, he undermined their power. So what's their beef with Jesus? Why would they say that Jesus falsely represents God? Well, they say that Jesus breaks God's law, but they would also say that Jesus is a blasphemer. They say Jesus claims to be equal with God and anyone who does that commits blasphemy. So how can someone truly represent God and so tarnish God's name? Jesus responds to this charge many times. He responded responded to it most recently back in chapter 10. He's charged with being a blasphemer for the claims that he's made And he says, look, guys, when you hear what I say, do I back it up with what I do? Over and over again, Jesus does things that only God can do. So Jesus clarifies, listen, I'm not here to contradict what you know about God. I'm here to lead you to a deeper knowledge of God than you've ever had before. So here are the authorities, and they label Jesus as a law-breaking blasphemer. He's undermined their influence over the people, and that's what leads them to adopt this new policy that anybody who follows Jesus is going to be banned from the synagogue. And chapter 12, verse 43, shows us that this policy worked. It scared a lot of people away from publicly identifying with Jesus. So in John 12, 44 and 45, Jesus wants to reassure people He wants to reassure people who are tempted to believe what the authorities are selling. He effectively says, guys, they are trying to convince you that I'm somehow at odds with the Father. No, the Father sent me. One commentator puts it like this, that to trust in the Savior is to trust in the one who sent the Savior. Jesus says in effect, The authorities tell you that believing in me clashes with what you know about God from the Old Testament. I'm here to tell you that believing in me is the culmination of what you know about God from the Old Testament. You see, guys, you can genuinely know God as he's revealed himself in the Old Testament, but that knowledge will be limited. Remember what God said to Moses in Exodus 33, verse 20. He tells Moses, Moses, no one can see me and live. So Jesus comes and he doesn't just have a new message to tell them about what God's like. That would make Jesus no different than from being just another prophet or another good man. Now Jesus claims that he himself is the living, breathing message for what God's like. He says, whoever sees me sees him who sent me. That's what we read earlier from Hebrews, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the perfect representative of the Father. You know, there's actually a modern twist on this ancient misconception. It also says that Jesus isn't a true representative of the Father, but it's not because Jesus is the law-breaking blasphemer. Rather, it's because Jesus is the nice one. Jesus is the reasonable one, the pleasant one. Whereas the Father, well, he's the cranky one the harsh one, the vindictive one. This message is that somehow Jesus sneaks behind the father's back to play the good cop to the father's bad cop. Have you heard some form of a message like that? Well, I say it's a modern twist, but actually this also is ancient thinking. You can see it all the way back to the second century in a guy named Marcion. Marcion. Even that guy tried to distance the good Jesus from the supposedly only wrathful God of the Old Testament. But right here in this passage, Jesus is adamant about his oneness with the Father. And he knows how God has revealed himself in the Old Testament. Just in a couple short verses, Jesus will talk about the reality of judgment. He claims that the Father and the Son aren't at odds with one another. They are united together. Jesus' point to these people is that if you truly know God as he's revealed himself, then you'll recognize God in me. He is the perfect representative of God. Now, Jesus begins in verses 44 and 45 by clarifying the truth about who he is. Next, Jesus will clarify the truth about what he's come to do. In verse 46, he says, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. This mission statement makes clear a truth about you and me, about who we are or really where we are without Jesus. Without Jesus, you and I are in the dark. So in this way, Jesus clears the air about another possible misconception that you might have about him. That misconception is that without Jesus, I'm just fine. Now, it's gonna help you understand verse 46 if you review other references to light and darkness in John's gospel. So again, I'm gonna have you flip around a little bit if you keep your finger in John 12 and flip back all the way to the beginning in John 1 and look at verses four and five. John 1, four and five. Those verses say, in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You can flip next to John 3, verse 19. It says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. Finally, you can flip to John 8, verse 12. Again, this is Jesus speaking here. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of, light, light of life. So according to these verses, darkness is the absence of light. Without any light, things remain hidden. And that final verse we reference, John 8, 12, tells you that darkness can keep a path Hidden. So if you're in a forest but it's dark, the way forward, the way back, will be hidden from you. But these verses we talked about also indicate that there's a darkness in you and in me. That you and I prefer to keep things hidden. In this way, darkness isn't just the absence of light. Darkness is also the presence of evil. You have secrets. You have struggles. You have sin that you prefer to keep in the dark. You prefer to hide them. You even prefer to hold on to them for yourself. Think back all the way to the beginning. Do you remember what Adam and Eve did after they rebelled against God? They covered themselves and they hid themselves. They wanted to keep what they did hidden from God and in the dark. And human beings have been doing that ever since. So Jesus coming as the light means he comes to uncover what is hidden. He uncovers the way to God that we haven't seen. And he also uncovers the sin we don't want him to see. No one likes being told this about themselves. When Jesus tells these people in John 12 that you guys are in the dark, you might imagine how they could have responded. Jesus, what are you talking about? We're in the dark. We're the children of Abraham. We have God's instructions. They are a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. And even if we do have any darkness, well, God's given us the animal sacrifices to address those and make up for them. This would be their own version of, thanks, but no thanks, Jesus. We're doing just fine on our own. Well, in response to them, God's instructions would be a light to their path and a lamp to their feet, but they don't follow God's instructions. And in front of them was the only one who ever did perfectly. Yes, God gave animal sacrifices to cover their sins, but he never, gave them, he never meant for them to fully pay for their sins. In front of them was the sacrifice who would do just that. Friends, when Jesus comes as the light and uncovers your need and uncovers the way back, you and I will have Two choices. And the choices are like, they remind me of a door hanger uh, from a hotel room that I saw someone share online. Uh, It's a door hanger that you can hang up and communicate to the housekeeper. One or two messages. On the one side, it was really creative. It says, I'm doing just fine. Please stay away. Or you can display the other side that says, I'm a mess. Please come in. What's the message that hangs on your heart? Well, you can try to convince yourself that I'm doing just fine. But the truth is, really, I don't want anyone touching my mess. You can try to convince yourself that I'm doing just fine. But really, you just shove your mess in the closet and pretend that everything's clean. You can try to convince yourself that you're doing just fine. But really, you just cover your mess with a perfume of good deeds. You can try to convince yourself you're doing just fine. But none of that will work friend, the light has come and your mess will be revealed. Listen, one day the housekeeper is going to come in whether you like it or not and you won't be able to hide the mess. But the good news today is that you don't have to hide the mess. You don't have to. He says whoever believes in him won't remain in the dark. Now look, I know it seems like letting Jesus invade your life will ruin your life. But he is adamant letting Jesus invade your life will save your life. Because he's the one who saw your mess, who came for you anyway, and who took it upon himself. The light has come. So what's it gonna be? I'm doing just fine, Jesus. Please stay away. Or I'm a mess, Jesus. Please come in. Believer in Jesus, is that the message that's still on the door of your heart? Because, you know, I think Christians can still fall for that same misconception that without Jesus, I'm just fine. You just do it in a different way. You hide what you're really struggling with because you think, well, Christians are supposed to look very neat and tidy. I don't talk about my addiction to lust because, well, Christians aren't supposed to do that. I don't talk about my anxiety because, well, Christians aren't supposed to worry. I don't talk about my arguments with my spouse because, well, Christians aren't supposed to argue with their spouse. I don't talk about how hard it is to be a mom, or I don't talk about how hard it is to have my job. I don't talk about how hard it is to be a pastor. That one's for me. You don't have to keep that hidden, you don't have to keep that in the dark. Christian, you're forgiven. And remember, you're not a finished product. You might still be a mess, but you're his mess. Why don't you let Jesus in and even let Jesus's people in? The posture of your life is no longer, I'm just fine without Jesus. No, the posture of your life as a Christian is, I'm not fine, but I have Jesus. Jesus. There are misconceptions about Jesus that will keep you from trusting in him. Remember, this is Jesus' last public statement to his Jewish countrymen. These people have heard a lot of lies about Jesus. They face threats for following Jesus, so Jesus wants to clear the air. Misconception number three. They might believe that Jesus came first to judge sin, that he came first to judge sin. So verse 47 says, If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Let's flash back a couple paragraphs uh, earlier in John chapter 12. Likely no more than a day or two prior to when Jesus speaks here. Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem and a large crowd gathers to give him a hero's welcome. Instead of a ticker tape parade, they throw Jesus a palm branch parade. And remember, we noticed that the palm branch had become somewhat of a national symbol for Israel. The crowd even acknowledges Jesus as the king of Israel. They've seen Jesus' power, and now it's time to ask, what can Jesus do for you? Well, what can you do for us, Jesus, so you can return us to glory? Break the shackles off of Rome and be our national liberator. To tamper down those expectations, Jesus doesn't come riding into that city on a mighty steed. He comes riding into that city on a lowly donkey. And John records how even Jesus' own disciples were confused by that decision. Well, Jesus was making the same point there as he's making here in John 12, verse 47. that That before he rides on a war horse to shed the blood of his enemies and establish his kingdom, he first rides on a donkey to shed his own blood for his enemies so that they might enter his kingdom. He came first to save, not to judge. When the crowds think that Jesus came first to judge, they sort of act like the contestants for the Miss America pageant. Bear with me because I know that might have come out of left field. Maybe you've seen the movie Miss Congeniality with Sandra Bullock. Uh, During one scene in that movie, all the contestants for Miss America are lined up and they're asked the same question. What's the one thing that society needs the most? And one by one, each contestant gives the same canned answer. World peace. And it's not necessarily a bad answer, right? Because everybody wants crime to end. Everybody wants war to end. And everybody wants abuse to end. But you end up running into the same problem as the people surrounding Jesus and Israel ran into. When you are so preoccupied with what's wrong with the world, you'll start to ignore or even justify what's wrong with you. A London newspaper posed a similar question to its readers in the early 1900s. What's wrong with the world today? The story goes that theologian G.K. Chesterton wrote back saying, Dear Sir, I am what's wrong with the world today. This perspective doesn't deny that there are big problems in the world. It just denies that I'm innocent of contributing to those problems in the world. So if Jesus came to judge before he came to save, this acknowledges that this wouldn't just spell trouble for the world. This would spell trouble for me. My friend, I urge you, don't be so preoccupied with thinking about how other people will stand before God that it makes you forget that you will stand before God. You know, if you believe in Jesus, I think you're still liable to fall for this misconception that Jesus came first to judge and not to save I want to remind you of what might be a familiar passage. Again, you can keep your finger in John 12 and flip over to 1 Corinthians 6, later on in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 6, picking up in verse 9. The Apostle Paul writes Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Pause. Christian, you can look at categories of people like that and you can conclude, man, these people are what's wrong with the world today. Listen, by no means am I advocating to condone those choices or lifestyles such as these. Paul certainly doesn't do that. But it's easy to look at people like that as a, uh, as a closed case before God. Thinking these people are condemned. They're judged. There's no hope. Well, if that was true, there would have been no hope for the Corinthians. Pick back up in verse 11. And such were some of you but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Jesus came first to save, not to judge. If that's not true, there would be no hope for you. Friend, this means that if you think your case is closed before God, if you think, I've just hurt too many people, I've just wasted too many opportunities, I'm just beyond repair. If you think your case is closed before God, here is good news. That Jesus came to save those who would be judged by taking the judgment they deserve in their place. Trust Him. Trust Him. Now, there are misconceptions that can keep you from trusting in Jesus to save you. We've seen three of them so far the misconception that Jesus isn't a true representative of the Father, the misconception that without Jesus, I'm just fine, the misconception that Jesus came first to judge and not first to save. The last one is the misconception that what I do with Jesus isn't a big deal. Verses 48 through 50, Jesus says this, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Now, I think Jesus seems to zero in on a certain kind of person in these verses. It's the kind of person who's very open to what he has to say. It's the kind of person who respects Jesus. The kind of person who agrees, yeah, Jesus, what you've come to do, it makes sense. It's the kind of person who will come to church and listen politely to a sermon. It's the kind of person who might even wear a cross necklace. It's the kind of person who would identify themselves as a Christian, but according to Jesus, it's the same type of person who hears his words, but won't keep them. Hears his words, but won't really receive them or embrace them. A big theme of Jesus's teaching so far has been that being friendly with him isn't the same as having true faith in him. We noticed just a couple of weeks ago that believing in Jesus means that you change. He changes what you value the most. He changes the direction of your life. Even last week, there were authorities who were friendly with Jesus. They just wouldn't hop off the fence and actually follow him. And we said this is effectively the same thing as rejecting him because true faith in Jesus goes public, doesn't remain private. While you might remain just friendly with Jesus and not truly follow him, Because you think that what I do with Jesus isn't a big deal. Jesus clears the air. What you do with Jesus is a big deal for two reasons. Reason one is because you'll be held accountable. And reason two is that because believing in him isn't just a suggestion. It's a command. First reason comes in verse 48. This verse tells you that you have a judge. Do you believe that? Have you thought about that? That you have a judge? For the people Jesus is talking to, he says they're going to be held accountable for having heard directly from him. Wow. Romans 1 tells you, though, that all people will be held accountable for the truths about God that are plain to each person, but we deny in our heart. You know, I think this is another one of those truths that you have a judge. It's another one of those truths that you want to be true for everybody else. You just don't want it to be true for you. Right? You want Hitler to have a judge, right? I mean, Hitler getting off by suicide? It's just too easy. There's got to be more. It's not enough. Hebrews 9.27, though, says that each one of us dies and then comes the judgment. Now, you might stand before God and say, hey, listen, God, I might not be perfect, but look, I'm no Hitler. Well, friend, that might be true. But on the last day, Romans 3.19 says, every mouth will be stopped and the whole world will be held accountable to God. That means all your excuses, all your babbling will be stopped and that no person will be justified in this sight. That means no person will have made up for the wrong that they've done. So what you do with Jesus is a big deal because what people say is right. You know, all roads do lead to God. You can be a Buddhist and get to God. You can be a Hindu and get to God. You can be an atheist and you'll get to God too. All those roads will lead you to God. At least they'll lead you to stand before God as your judge. There's only one way that leads to being acquitted by God. And that's to trust Jesus. To stand in your place as the only one who took the judgment that you deserve. We sing about this beautiful truth all the time. We sang about it last Sunday evening. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. You might think what I do with Jesus isn't a big deal. It is a big deal because you're going to be held accountable. It is a big deal because this isn't just a suggestion to believe in him. It's a command. That's what Jesus talks about in verse 49 and 50. You know, the people listening to Jesus in John 12 probably listen to Jesus like you listen to a speed limit sign. I see people on 480. They treat a speed limit sign more like a speed suggestion sign. Hey, this is a good idea for how fast to go. But you know what? If this speed doesn't work for you, that's okay. Feel free to find a speed that does work for you. And we'll all be fine. Funny people have told me, Steve, if this whole Jesus thing works for you, great. If this, is what's help you, if this is what helps you to be a better person, go for it. You do you, man. Well, in response to that, we say at least this. Just as the speed limit sign didn't pop up on its own, it was put there by those in charge of the roads, So also, what Jesus says doesn't pop up on its own. It comes from the Father. So when you don't believe in Jesus, you're not turning down a suggestion that might work for you. When you don't believe in Jesus, you're disobeying a command from the God who made you. And we can press it a little bit further. You know, you might think that the speed limit sign is meant to harm you. It's meant to hold you back. You say, my Hyundai Sonata was meant to purr, baby. I got to rev the engine. The speed limit wasn't meant to harm you. It's meant to preserve you. You might think that God's command to trust in his son is meant to harm you. It will hold you back. No. Jesus says his command is eternal life. It's not meant to harm you. It's meant to preserve you. So friend, you can buy the lie that Jesus doesn't truly represent God. Maybe buy the lie that Jesus is one of many, not one and only. You can hide, you can justify your mess and say, without Jesus, I'm just fine. You can drown in despair or you can swell in self-righteousness because you think that Jesus came first to judge and not to save. You can live your life carefree because you think you're accountable to no one. You can regard believing in Jesus as just a suggestion and not a command because you think what I do with him isn't a big deal. You can fall for any number of these misconceptions and more. Or you can trust him. You can trust that he is the eternal son of God sent by the father in love to bear the judgment you face for your sin. In trusting Jesus, you listen to him. In trusting Jesus, you live for him. And in trusting Jesus, you are now rescued, you are transformed, you are acquitted, and you have eternal life. Thank God. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that we are we so often believe awful things about you and the truth is so much better than what we fall for and are deceived into. Lord, I, we pray that you would lead any person here who is somehow buying into some, some sort of misconception about who Jesus is and you would lead them to the good news of the truth that you sent him to take what they deserve and to give them what they could not give to you, a perfect life. And it's a free gift. Would you lead all of us to embrace the Savior as the one who blesses us, not harms us, as the one who saves our life, not ruins it. Help us to hold up Jesus so that he's not just needed, but so that Jesus is wanted, that we desire him. We thank you, Lord, for your abundant, merciful love and grace. And it's in the mighty name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen.